Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by Eric Dreitzer, independent geopolitical analyst, host of Counterpunch Radio, writer, and he also has a Patreon. Where can they find you, Eric? Patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer, political commentaries, essays, articles, poetry, videos, more. Right on, man. Well, thanks for coming on the program. Dude, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun, I'm sure. Yeah, dude. So I've been following your work for some time. One of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the program is because you've always seemed to me to be one of the more thoughtful, reasonable, and principled sort of left analysts that I think is around right now in the U.S. And I think there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of like crazy shit that I see that passes for left commentary. People like Caitlin Johnstone, people like... (laughs) all kinds of craziness and I've even heard you and Jeffrey and other people sort of refer to this like Sputnik left which I think is a great term um and I I I guess what I'm saying is like I've just wanted to kind of pick your brain about like how you see the political landscape in the U.S. right now particularly the left as it stands um and just kind of get your thoughts on like you know where do you position yourself in the left in the United States today uh and sort of how you came about you know, some of your own political understanding. So I guess we can maybe start there. Let's go with how did you become politicized? And I know that was a lot, but but we'll start start specific. And no, it was like four great questions rolled into one. And I was just like, ooh, wow, what would I say there? You know, yes, absolutely, man. Um, Very happy to be chatting with you. My political background, well, I mean, I come from a very right-wing politically right-wing family, uh, not not necessarily socially conservative in the way that we might understand it in the U.S., but politically uh, aligned with, you know, Reaganism and, and and things like that. My parents are immigrants from the Soviet Union. Uh, my podcast actually this week is an interview with my uncle all about, you know, their history and, and the Soviet Union and so forth. And uh, they are, you know, right-wing, pro-Zionist, pro, you know, Republican voters. You know, I had an upbringing in which I understood, you know, the world, Jesus, I understood uh, the world to be sort of, you know, the way that anybody who's indoctrinated into sort of U.S. imperialism understands it. You know, the United States does what it does around the world for good. You know, U.S. stands for good. Israel stands for good. Democracy, et cetera. Um, which I think is probably fairly common, particularly for like Jewish kids, uh, especially first generation ones, you know, of, of Soviet immigrants. Um, <clears throat> and once I got to, you know, college really was at the same time as 9-11 and then the Iraq war. And that was a very quick turnaround for me as soon as as soon as I was confronted with these things. 9-11 was my senior year in high school and uh, the Iraq war began my freshman year in college. And, you know, that whole period and everything that happened during that period, uh, I can't say it radicalized me because that's not correct, but it pushed me out of, you know, the childlike sort of innocence that I had, I suppose, and uh, pushed me in in uh, more left-wing, politically active direction uh, towards protest. I mean, the Iraq war protest was my first, you know, that was my first thing I ever did. And, uh, you know, going from there, protesting against the Bush administration. And by 2005, I left uh, California where I grew up and uh, came to New York and became further radicalized in New York, I suppose, and was exposed to more radical left-wing political ideas. And um, 
from there, I, I you know, that, I mean, it just kind of went from there. And ultimately, by 2010, 2011, I had uh, sort of felt like it was important for me to make a contribution of some kind in the best way that I could. And I felt that that was in the form of media and in getting involved in media. And at that time, the, it left media and alternative left media was not exactly as evolved as it is today. And, um, you know, I felt that that was where I could make a mark and uh, not just a mark for myself, but a mark in terms of the movement and con contributing something to an anti-imperialist, anti-war uh, position. And uh, Occupy happened, the war on Libya happened, all of that was going on in 2011. And I started my uh, website and my first podcast at that time. And, you know, I've been doing it since then. Oh, no shit. So you started podcasting back in 2011. Yeah, I, I guess it was still the early days of podcasting, really. I've I've gone through several different podcasts. Uh, uh, Counterpunch Radio, which is my current one that I've been doing for, for a while, uh, is like my third or, fourth, third or fourth one that I've done. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, so I, I, I was doing it back then. But, um, you know, at the time during Occupy, there wasn't much appetite for an anti-war perspective. It was very much focused on what, you know, Occupy was, and I think to very much to its detriment. And I said that at the time, and I was trying to drum up an anti-war sentiment, particularly around the war on Libya, which was raging in the United States and the French and the British were bombing Libya at that at the very time that we were occupying in Zuccotti Park. And I was there, I guess I probably started at the Occupy protests around, I guess maybe like halfway through the second week or so, you know what I mean? So fairly early on before it was the phenomenon that it had become and before it had spread to other cities. And uh, yeah, and uh, from there, I, you know, things just kind of grew. We were there with the Iraq Veterans Against the War uh, when it first kicked off because we had friends through Jonathan Matthew Smucker and some other folks who were connected to Adbusters. And so... I remember those days very clearly. In fact, I remember walking around the rotunda in Wisconsin six months prior to Occupy and an anti-war activist. Yeah. Walked, this is when I knew we were in a big fucking trouble. I had an anti-war activist walk up to me and he said, what do you think about what Obama and them are going to do in Libya? And I, so I was like, what do you mean? What do I think? I mean, and this was the downfall even of Iraq veterans against the war. Sergio can talk about this at length. In fact, he got almost booted out of a chapter for trying to bring up that Iraq veterans against the war should take on uh, Israel and Iraq veterans against the war should denounce the war in Afghanistan. That to us were like no brainers. That shit, I think people forget, but that shit was still controversial even back like in 2011, 2012, even. And yep. as you're mentioning about Occupy, I think that's so true. And it's something we didn't do, I don't think, a good enough job of even in the anti-war movement. And that is connecting U.S. empire to austerity at home. Um, it was so hard to penetrate, though, you know, they didn't people didn't want to hear that at that time because it felt like it felt like you were accused of, like, bringing your own agenda into the Occupy mood. Right. So they'd be like, they'd be like, man, that's not how we do things. You know, we have a speaker stack and we have a people's mic and, you know, and, and I'm like, motherfucker, they're bombing an African country right now. They're 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 literally destroying it today. 
you know, so how are we not, how are we not willing to discuss this? And, you know, and that was, that was sort of, I guess, a discovery of, of the extreme limitation of Occupy, you know, that was among, among several uh, major shortcomings, but Occupy had many, many, many great qualities too. And, uh, you know, the time that I uh, did spend at Occupy was obviously great in, in a lot of ways. So. Yeah, and changed the conversation, which was dominated by talks of austerity from 08 to 2011. I mean, it was nothing but Absolutely. that for three and a half years until Occupy came along. So I, I yeah, and and I think that Occupy, I think that Occupy ended up being sort of uh, sort of a meeting place for a lot of people who went in different directions. That many of whom, you know. I don't know if this is funny or not, but many of whom ultimately became, you know, sort of the Bernie movement. I mean, many of those, many of those elements became sort of core constituencies of the Bernie movement that it's depending on, depending on how cynical you think Bernie Sanders is and depending on how cynical you are about po politics, you know, one could say Bernie, ca you know, uh, uh, benefited from what happened to Occupy or what, what became of the remnants of Occupy, or one could say, you know, sort of exploited and capitalized on, you know, I suppose, you know, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the thing, my whole thing with Bernie from the get go was always, I, because I could care less about him as a person, which became an issue when we got engaged with the campaign, because there was like a cult of personality around the fucking guy that was very strange. And totally. I thought like, my whole yeah. thing, I mean, the thing that I've tried to explain to people is, and as far as my uh, orientation toward the Bernie campaign was like, as someone who's organizing pretty much full time now, it's like trying to find outlets that are bringing people into the mix who otherwise would never come around. And for the Bernie campaign, especially in 2016, was not true in 2020. But in 2016, in a place where we live in Northwest Indiana, you know, there were like house parties and apartment parties of fucking people that never ever were involved with politics and like good like working class poor people from the city who like were tuned into this particular guy in this particular campaign so we looked at it as like an organizing opportunity then when we would go to events with like our revolution it was like whoa like we would meet people who are like wearing bernie fucking regalia and just like talking about him in this crazy way and I don't know, man. I don't know how I would orientate toward a national political campaign after uh, fucking around with that campaign twice now. I really don't know. Because on the positive yeah. side, some of the people we met are in fact now like organizing tenants campaigns and like really good shit here in the community. But at the other end, I mean, a lot of it, it was almost as crazy as the Obama stuff. I mean, some of the oh, people yeah. we met were like as crazy as some of the Obama supporters that we uh, encountered in 2008. Look, I mean, again, <clears throat> I'm sure that numerous books are currently being written on, uh, you know, the Bernie movement and, you know, the legacy and all of that and what will come of it. Um, to me, you know, and again, this is my perspective because I was way left, way to the left of Bernie, way before Bernie was at, before Bernie, anybody knew who Bernie Sanders was, you know what I mean? So for me, Bernie is just kind of like a blip in my, you know, own sort of trajectory. But uh, to me, the lasting legacy and the lasting lesson of Bernie Sanders is the absolute necessity of an independent workers party in the United States. I mean, it's, it's just that simple that if people I just don't can do think, it. 
That's yeah. And my my thing is with the third party stuff. I mean, I like as even people who want third parties, like you know, Paul Street has talked about this over and over again. It's like, yeah, of course I want the third party, but in the context of the laws that exist in the United States, I just look around and I look at the organizers I know, and I'm like. Yeah, I don't see any movement towards that at all. Yeah, no, I agree. But what's a party? But what, what what's a political party in the United States supposed to look like in the time of plague? Yeah. In the time of economic depression? What do you think a political party is supposed to look like? To me, it's not supposed to look like the party that's contending with the Democrats and the Republicans for political power in Washington. I wouldn't measure, I wouldn't use that as a barometer for how you would establish a party. I would say, can you, can you establish a political apparatus that can get gather traction in neighborhoods, can establish itself, can actually provide for the material needs in extreme situations that are happening every single day. I mean, in time of pandemic, you see it every single day. In time of mass homelessness and mass unemployment, especially what we're uh, uh, dealing with now in the wake of what I imagine is going to be at some point a wave of uh, foreclosures and evictions, you know, that a political party to me is a political an organized political apparatus that can respond to these situations that's what i'm that's what you mean i mean without having me. state power correct absolutely and yeah. but but one that is organized i don't mean along anarchist lines because i'm not an anarchist and i don't believe that that's necessarily the way to go i do think that there has to be a level of centralization a level of organization a level of leadership but what i feel is and, and again I don't mean to say that this is to the exclusion of casting a vote for AOC if you feel inclined. I don't give a damn if you do that. That makes no difference to me. But I don't believe that lasting change in the United States and contending for political power is going to come by taking over the Democratic Party or by bending the Democratic Party to your whims. The Democratic Party has been around longer than any political party in the world. Yeah. It, yeah. it, has, been, it has been around since pre-Civil War. Yeah. And it will continue to be around in its form that we know it today, in my yeah. view. Well, it is not the same today than it was 40 years ago than it was 80 years ago. I mean, again, again, I don't I don't believe that we can simply, you know, apply the parallel of 80 years ago to today. And I certainly don't think that there's an FDR style power center within the Democratic Party because it's clear where the power center is. It just mauled the majority of its own base. The majority of its base wants Bernie-style programs and Bernie-style policies. That's a fact. And yet it yeah. mauled its own base successfully. Well, the ba but the base went with uh, Biden. The base isn't organized. I mean, so this but that's idea, what I mean. Yeah, but yeah, isn't but that But isn't that the point? What do you mean? But, but isn't that the point that the Democratic Party exists almost independent of what, you know, its own voters would want? Well, that's because its voters aren't organized. I mean, what base of power does its organizer? The, the, mm. the, to me today, it's like asking what the left is. When somebody says, like, we should do this, I ask, who are you talking about? Are you talking about unions? Are you talking about sectarian political parties with, like, a thousand members? Are you talking about student organizations well, are you talking about NGOs well, I would, you know I, what I mean well, I would take, I, I'm not yeah, saying sure. just for you I mean like no no I would take an organization you know. like DSA like what is DSA like how is DSA built how is DSA operating I think DSA is I mean me personally I think DSA is 
more positive than it is any than, than it is negative. Sure. I have criticisms of it, but I think it's tremendously positive. I think that a structure like that that exists in as many cities as it does could and should be doing tremendously more than it does do. And I think part of the limitation has to do with the political vision of what an organization is versus what a political party is supposed to be. See, you know this as well as I do. A a, a, a hundred well-trained organizers can do a lot more than 10,000 untrained volunteers. Sure. Right? And in my view, that's clearly what's needed at this point in whatever form that's going to take. And it's not going to be, uh, I don't think it's going to be under the tent of the Democratic Party. That's my... No, no. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I think that even the majority of people's efforts, organizing efforts should go into trying to organize within the Democratic Party apparatus. For me, it's a matter of like, who are you going to run your people under? So in a state like Indiana, there's X amount of requirements. So like the libertarians just gained 15 percent of the vote in the last gubernatorial race. So now the trifecta controlled Republican majority in the House, supermajority in the House, Senate and the governor are passing new laws to make sure it's even more difficult for third parties to get on the ballot. So it's like, you know, for me, it's a matter of what institutions are you going to use in what kind of context? So should people's, should the vast majority of people's organizing resources go into organizing within the Democratic Party? No, I don't think so. But in order to gain some kind of a base to even have electoral power, you have to engage in campaigns and actually grow a base of supporters. So whether that's at a workplace or at an apartment complex or at a university, whatever it may be. And I also agree with you that the vision of DSA can also be expanded. But as far as what people are doing, I mean, I can tell you what it looks like on the ground from organizing with a chapter that's just starting. But that's, you know, I think a right. lot. No, no, no. But, 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 but I think the difference, I think the difference here is uh, what we're talking about in terms of organizing, right? Organizing, what is a political party? A political party, in my view, would be one that is centrally controlled in a democratic way, one that is organized along financial and political and ideological lines. I think that things like the Green Party are doomed to failure partially because they don't address some of these fundamental necessities. I just don't, in all of the time that I've ever done any work outside of the anti-war activism, I've never known a successful organization that didn't have strong central leadership. Mm -hmm. I've never known one. And I don't know if it's even possible, especially given uh, the conditions now. And um, to my mind, that means that a political party or a political organization would have some level of central control. And I think that's what's going to be, well, let me put it this way. If you allow it to break down in the way that, if you allow things to break down, say, in the way that they did after Occupy and people go in a thousand different directions, it will then reemerge again in a totally disorganized fashion. Yeah. As a as a quote unquote spontaneous upsurge, and we will once again yeah. repeat the same cycle. I personally feel like I've gone through three times already, yep. you know, and I feel like it's an endless cycle as things just degenerate. And me personally, because I have very young children, I'm constantly thinking about what the next 20 years looks like. Sure. Because that's that's their childhood and their young adulthood. And I 
have, I will say, a tremendous amount of skepticism that people, quote unquote, on the left, broadly speaking, have any vision at all for how we break out of this cycle. Well, I think that's a matter of, uh, I think that is definitely a, a, a clear sign of sort of where we're at. I agree with you that if we don't, if we don't, I don't think it's a matter of just having centralized leadership within a party apparatus. I mean, I think it's a matter of people actually organizing. And I think that in and of itself. What does that mean? Oh, that means actually people being a member of an organization and winning material things in the real world where they live at their workplace, in their community, at their university, in their churches, neighborhoods, wherever they are. But being a part of an organization with a growing base of supporters who are accountable to an organization, like regularly developing vision, strategy, winning campaigns that actually make a difference. All of that is organizing. Like what we see people doing is largely mobilizing. Oh, I, I, I agree. I, I just happen to think that given where we are in the development, in, and again, I'm speaking in the United States, given where we are in the United States, I think that what we're, what we're going to begin to see is the breakdown of social institutions and state institutions. Vaccine distribution is a good example of this. This is a very, sim- I mean, I don't want to say very simple, but it should be logistically simple. And yet the United States is unable to do this, unable to deliver this. And as this becomes increasingly the norm, which I think it will be, um, I believe it's going to be incumbent upon anyone who wants political power, as you were just describing it, to be able to respond to some of the material needs and fill those gaps, right? That's how Hezbollah operated, right? That's how Hezbollah built its base of support. That's how every terror organization builds its base of support. That's how ISIS operated in a lot of ways in those spaces where the state had broken down, where people's, you know, social services weren't being provided. They provided them, of course, in their own way and under their own, you know, banners and so forth. But, um, yeah, it's, I'm increasingly, it's interesting I'm, because we we experimented with that for the first, I would say, two years with organized and united residents of Michigan City. So we live in a totally fucked up Rust Belt town. So this place is like you're talking real poverty, 40 or 50 percent, according to the United Way, 55 percent of people here can't even make ends meet. So this place is like coal fired power plant, people sitting on death row at the maximum security prison with a casino and about 50 homicides last year in a city of 30,000. So before, you know, the there, yeah, there ain't nobody who lives in the United States who lives in more fucked up region than where we live right here, stretching from Gary to the south side of Chicago. And even for the first two years of our organizing efforts, we were like, okay, immediate services filling the gap of a state apparatus that has completely deteriorated here, especially in the context of deindustrialization. There's just nothing. The unions are eaten up and they, they're just all business unions and the Democratic Party is basically an empty vessel. But, you know, and the social services from the county, they just don't exist. And we live in a Republican-controlled state, so there's no state services either. So, yeah, I mean, we provided all kinds of services, including the community center that we have, which is like soup kitchens for the homeless, uh, coat drives, uh, social gatherings for people in the city. You name the social service, and we've done it over the last two and a half years we have not gained nearly the base through that those kind of efforts that we have through like concentrated single issue campaigns so like 
concentrated campaigns. What if you? Ha- I mean, but but do you think that? All right, that's that's an. That's it's an made a connection, though. You know what I mean? Like in other words, well, it no, has, but and it's but brought people an, I, in the door. I guess what I'm saying is that all of those things I agree and are are true, but to do it on a broad scale requires resources resources that are not available when you're talking about individually working with grouplets at a local level in my you know in my estimation you need some kind of a broader apparatus that can actually provide not only the financial and material resources but human resources to be able to build in the way that at least what I'm talking about. And I know that what, what, what you're talking about. So, you know, I've always thought like I, like I was mentioning about the green party, how many people in this country theoretically identify as green? I mean, it's a pretty large number. It's small in the electorate, but it's a large number in terms of they were all dues paying members. One could imagine the resources that could potentially be available towards the kind of projects that you're talking about. If you had that kind of apparatus, which you don't, Um, And uh, I think that one of the things that's missing in the United States is that kind of organized political effort. Um, I know that there are people in the Green Party who have tried to advocate that. The late Bruce Dixon was a big advocate of of that and making sure that, hey, you know, if you have 10,000 people and 9,000 of them don't do shit, but 1,000 of them are real, and of those 1,800 of them will be dues paying and will be, you know, whatever, then you have something to work with, right? But I just fear that, you know, the United States is a very vast country with incredible diversity and every, communities and regions are so different from one another that there's that it requires a network and an organization that I don't think most people are willing to like sort of envision what that would be. I don't think it's a matter of people not envisioning it. In other words, even people within DSA, they talk about this like nonstop. I mean, and I, we just started with DSA stuff. I mean, there's people like, to me, the conversations are happening all the time. It's just a matter of how do you make it happen? I mean, so in other words, this is like, like I hear ideas from people all the time and then I'm like, yeah, like sounds really good. What is step one to, to doing what you're saying? And you know, most of the time it's like, people don't really have an idea because they're not really doing that. You know what I'm saying? Like we have people out there. Why would you, why would you, if somebody has an idea, if somebody, dude, I have an idea for a building. That doesn't mean I can draft the blueprints for you, dude. I don't know how to do that. Like that's not my, you know what I mean? Yeah, but that's the problem with, but this is the, yeah, yeah. This is the problem though with the left today is that we have, a shitload of analysts and people who say things, but they're not actually like on the ground doing things. So that I when agree. they, you know what I'm saying? So when they say I these agree. things, it's like, yeah. I 100%, I 100% agree with you. But again, I mean, you can't, you can't just fake the funk either. Like you have to have people who know how to do these things. You have to have trained, you know, people who I can agree do things, you know, who can do everything from build out the IT infrastructure to be able to manage the finances to knowing how to constitute a board of directors or a board of governors and how to institute, you know, decision making structures and all of those type of things and how to manage them and not, not just institute them, but manage them. And those things, you know, just in my professional life are some of the things that I do in my professional life. And I know that when you transplant that into the, you know, sort of, you know, political activism world, it's very, very, very difficult, very difficult. For sure. For sure. Um, this is why I think it's important for it to get back to the conversation about organizing. I mean, to me, organizing is built is 
building back mass numbers of people. So it's like you, and if we want to create mass movements, then we're going to have to be spending most of our time talking to people who are not with us. And that doesn't mean boogaloos or fucking proud boys or whatever, but that means a whole shitload of, of people who, yeah, I think a lot of people on the left assume because the opinion polls say that they want Medicare for all, but if you actually knock on enough doors and then if you actually talk to people and dig further into it, yeah, people are very confused about what that means. Of course. Exactly how they would get it, you know. So yeah, I mean, people are inclined towards those ideas, but again, if we don't have organizations and apparatuses to do it, and that's why, of course, Eric, for me, it's like, yes, bring, in other words, I think it would be important for you to get engaged with, say, a DSA. So that way, those ideas, wherever you are, you know what I'm saying? They they have to, like, actually deal with them. I was engaged with the local one. I was at the founding um, uh, event where they uh, did the charter that officially, like, incorporated it into DSA. Unfortunately, I... uh, uh, my wife got pregnant not long after that, and then there were some health issues with the baby, and then COVID, and so it's been quite a long time. So yeah, I don't yeah. know exactly what's going on, um, and I haven't been able to be engaged in that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I agree. Listen, to I mean, to me, I would I I am ultimately interested in um, a large scale political project that has power in mind you know i mean that's what i'm that's what i'm interested in and uh i just fear that very often that issue gets lost right so you say right so it's very it's i don't want to say very easy but it's much easier to work on a single issue well of course it is think about the you know theoretical you know construct there people are united around one issue a common goal a singular goal that people can concretely sort of envision Whereas a something very abstract like liberation or revolution or anything like that, I mean, well, people are gonna be like, "What are you fucking kidding me? Come on, sure. you know what I mean?" So, like, how does that translate? Well, that's a complicated that's a complicated issue. I uh, I, I think that there's a lot of different ways to approach it. I think the first thing is that. Um, people are going to have a tendency to be radicalized as the conditions deteriorate. I do think that conditions could potentially deteriorate in this country. I do think that climate change is going to accelerate a lot of these deterioration, a lot of these deteriorating conditions. I think that mass migrations could potentially upend a lot of what we understand of our politics and understand about the way that people see themselves in relation to things. I worry about the extreme reaction that we might see to things that uh, for now have been imaginary under Trump, things like mass migrant caravans. What happens when those things are real? Yeah. You're not going to build a political project at that point. It has to already be there. Yeah. Able to respond to those conditions, because otherwise you're going to just get swept by a a mass fascist movement that's going to emerge, that's going to want to just mow human beings down at the border or whatever they're going to want to do. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I totally uh, agree. Clock is ticking. I agree. I don't think that uh, the deteriorating conditions will necessarily be better for us. In other words, I don't oh, assume. You know I agree. I mean? like that people, <laughs> I will, that people will get you. radicalized, but I don't know if they'll In get the wrong radicalized. Way. Right, right. Yep. Yeah. 100%. No, and so see, my thing is, Eric, that I don't, for me, it's not so much the an ideological approach to what the structure needs to be. Yes, the ultimate goal should be power. That's something that we don't talk about at all on the left. I mean, to me, 
there is a sense of sort of over-moralizing. And this is where people like Chris Hedges drives me uh, up a wall. Although I give him credit for covering areas like our own that are sort of these sacrifice zones that nobody has given a fuck about for many, many decades. That I give him credit for. I give him credit for, for his uh, reporting on the war. But this, this like just we're going to speak truth to power or we're going to be on the right side of history type of shit like that doesn't fly with most people. And it's not going to be good enough to survive or to deal with the multiple calamities that are coming down the pipeline. So for me, it's like if someone could point me to different existing and or like real feasible projects that I could participate in, that would be. Uh, alternatives to the existing state apparatus. So, like, whether that is an extension of mutual aid networks, alternative economies, cooperatives, community-owned, whatever it may be, um, I agree with you that we're running up against institutions that are just ossifying daily. But I also wonder, again, I thought this back in 2010. I mean, in 2010, I was, you know, reading books about the environment collapsing, and I'm like, oh, God, we're not going to have a country in five years, or we're not going to have food in 10 years. And, yeah, it's, you know, it's coming, but at the same time, I do wish that I would have done more of the foundational work that we're doing now, which is, like, training people up, putting them through actual campaigns in the real world so they could learn through doing, you know what I mean? All this stuff that, like, back then I was like, Oh, yeah. Fuck freaking out the way that I hear people freaking out in the context of the pandemic. It's like, yeah, I mean, we thought. Well, that it's, they, you know. it's funny because I'm freaking out now just like I was freaking out then. Yeah, yeah. But yet not. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like with the wisdom of knowing exactly what, you know, like 10 years ago, hell, 15 years ago, I remember thinking, well, it's going to be I mean, it's going to be a straight up, you know, fascist police state by 20, you know, by 2012. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I was like, I was sure of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know, yeah. And 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 it's like. Uh, yeah, kind of, but not really, but sort of, you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? So yep. it's like, so it's like, you know, if you think about it, well, it's not exactly what I envisioned, but then again, I also wasn't thinking about AI powered facial recognition software that could uh, instantaneously pull 10 million data points and pull it out of a fucking cloud. And, you know what I mean? I wasn't thinking about all of the possible ways that some of that would be true and yet my vision of it being wrong, you know, or at least, you know, distorted by, you know, dystopian novels and Hollywood and whatever else that everyone has a tendency to, you know, sort of project into the future. Um, you know, uh, however, at the same time, I also recall, you know, thinking to myself that back then that wow, is my whole life going to be the downward trajectory of the country? And now, you know, 15 years later, I'm looking at that. I'm like, damn, yes, that's correct. That was correct. Like that, you know, for somebody born, I mean, I'm, you know, I was born in 1983, you know, I was 84. born at, you know, I would say at the uh what the apogee of u.s power i mean the reagan administration as the soviet union was beginning to show signs of weakening and so forth and you know and that the entire sort of trajectory of my life would track sort of the high point of the empire all the way down to whatever depths it might 
continued to go. And I do now, of course, having children think, Jesus Christ, like, is that, was that, was I right? Like, is that really how this, it's never going to get better? Is that how this is going to go? You know what I mean? And that I do worry about that people, I think people do somehow, certainly liberals think this way, but even some people on the left somehow think that, you know, some kind of deus ex machina is going to happen and that things are just going to get better. But like, things don't get better in empires that unravel. Historically, that's not how it goes. You know, things don't get better. They just get worse and worse and worse until things ultimately at some point crumble, you know? And I mean, in the Roman Empire's case, that took place over what, two and a half centuries, basically. You know, I mean, I don't know how long it would take in this country, but I sure as hell don't want to sit around, you know, banking on, you know, the whole world collapsing in, you know, 18 months, like some people do. You no, know. <laughs> no, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and, you know, thinking about this for a long time, it's, you know, when I first started reading about when I was becoming politicized in the Marine Corps, I started reading Chalmers Johnson. And of course, Chalmers Johnson oh, sure. was writing a ton about, you know, the blowback trilogy and all that nemesis and sorrows of empire and Nothing the second one blowback. Yeah, man. Yep. I mean, he's and, you know, I, to, to paraphrase him, he was uh I think one of his famous quotes is like, history teaches us the capacity for things to get worse is limitless. So it's like when you start, I think trying to operate with like that two-sided brain for the last 15 years of being politically active since I got home from the war, it's like knowing that this whole thing could be going down no matter how hard we try. And at the same time, not letting that like put you in this deep state of cynicism or nihilism where you just, or like a permanent state of existential crises where you just can't do anything because, you know, man, yeah, I, you know, I don't have a child of my own, but I have, uh, you know, my partner has a child. I have friends who have children. My sister has children and like, not only for them, but just that like spirit of like, are we really going to take this like lying down from these fucking people? Like there is that spirit of like, fuck you, man. And I've had that, sort of attitude since the war so believe me Eric there is nothing like in my mind I mean Sergio and I talk about it all the time it's like there's nothing in my mind that tells me that things can't get just as bad here as they've gotten anywhere else and we're in a country where people have like unlimited weapons and munitions that people in a lot of other places do not have including you know whatever 6700 nuclear warheads laying around or whatever the fuck else um it is it is See, and that's one of that's one of my concerns, man. So getting back to like how much do you want to fuck with the existing state? It's like I do worry about who sort of control unless we have like workers organized within the state or workers organized at their workplace enough to like actually control and shut down industries. What worries me is if indeed this place continues to deteriorate to the extent that you're still going to have a state apparatus, like who in the fucking right mind is going to control it? Which way does the military go? I know this can get down like a rabbit hole of ideas and nobody has any idea how it will play out. But, you know, those are the Look, things I, that like, you know what I'm saying? And I'm, dude, yes, man. I know exactly what you're saying is the things I think about uh, in a much more than would be healthy otherwise, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the truth is, uh, you know, just getting back to the thing about having ha- having kids is that I, I don't mean that to say in like a schmaltzy way, like emotionally. I mean because you 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 have to you start to it forces you to think about things in a different way. Like okay, what how like how would I secure food if things got fucking crazy? You know what I mean? Like how are my kids gonna eat? Like what like what am I gonna do? You know if I can't 
protect them or if I can't call the cops or if I can't, you know what I mean? Like, or if I don't have a group of friends that are going to come and, you know, defend my home from like a gang of fascists who don't like one of my podcasts, you know what I mean? Like those kinds of things, like in a, in a state of political breakdown, those kinds of things are going to happen. You know, those kinds of things are already basically happening. You know what I mean? You live in some parts of this country. I have no doubt that you could get just absolutely murdered, you know, for speaking ill of Trump or whatever, you know, and the sheriff would just look the other way. I have no doubt that kind of thing goes on, you know? Uh, So I can only imagine how bad things might get and forget Trump. Trump is sort of clownish at this point. Imagine what the next motherfucker is going to be like, you know? And so, uh, and I mean, that's what I've been writing about for several years now is, is, is issues like that. Um, And so I do, I do agree with you in every way. And, And at the same time, one of the things that I think is a good lesson from Trump uh, and from this period is that when the real fascist does take power in the fascist state, what I, you know, what I would, what I would call sort of the fully formed fascist state, which would be a state that is in sort of unison able to activate the architecture of the police state that already exists with the Patriot Act and everything else that in the surveillance and everything else that exists, but that isn't fully, uh, you know, codified as one cohesive sort of surveillance state, yet we do still have, I mean, much as much as I'm loath to give any credit to the Constitution or the Bill of Rights or anything of that, I mean, we do still have some fundamental rights in this country, and there is some degree of restraint on the uh, uh, state apparatus, but uh, under conditions of extreme political breakdown, those things are going to kind of fall away and melt away, and the full police state will emerge, and, uh, you know, if we don't have our own, if we don't have our own politically organized resistance at that point, we're going to get steamrolled. Yeah, I don't know what the, I agree with you. I don't know what the resistance to that looks like because the left that, you know, Serge and I have uh, participated, he's just rolling his eyes. Look, man, the left that Serge the left I, is regular people, though. I'm not talking about the fucking internet left. I'm not talking about, you know what I mean? People in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, who are like, you know, in their skinny jeans or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm talking, the left, quote unquote, is regular people. It's, you know, the janitor. It's, you know, it's the grandma. It's like regular people. Like, that's yeah, the yeah. quote unquote left, you know? If, um, they, if you could get extent. them to identify with it. Yeah. Well, we're calling it that. I'm not necessarily saying they would call it that. Yeah, yeah. They would, you know what <laughs> well, I mean? Like the, Woody, like you know, like we call we call what you know what is it like? We call Woody Guthrie a communist, co- communism, right? Well, he called it communism, mm-hmm. right? He just said it was common sense, right? That that leftist values was common sense that the bank doesn't get to take away someone's home and people will just fucking show up with guns and make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that was that's not you know, common anymore, though. No, it's not common anymore. No, it's not common anymore. I'm not under the delusion that this is, you know, the dust bowl, but like at the same time, I do think that, um, under, under extreme conditions, you'll begin to see, uh, a tremendous amount of courage from a lot of places that you wouldn't expect it now. I think that will, I think that will emerge too. Yeah. Um, it's not all bad. You know what I mean? People will, people will stand up against all of that. The problem is that if there's no organized resistance, then we will get steamrolled. Yeah, I guess the question is, what does that organized resistance look like? And again, to me, we don't have a population. I'm not talking about the uh, skinny jeans people. They don't have a shot. The uh, population I know who are the most like productive, accountable, disciplined people 
are not uh, aligned with the left at all. And the people I know who we would be talking about, half the doors that we knock on in Michigan City are people who uh, can barely walk to the door because they have diabetes and they're on fucking ventilators. And, like, my concern right. with a lot of the people who are going to be most vulnerable is, like, doing everything we can in our power to avoid a situation of breakdown. Um, and I'm not necessarily worried about like a nationwide, to your point earlier about the United States being geographically vast and diverse. I'm not at all worried about the, after being in the military, not at all worried about the military having the ability to lock down the entire country. I'm much more worried about, that would be best case scenario for us in, oh, yeah. in a bad situation. Absolutely. I'm, I'm like oh. much, more, I'm like, we might be praying for like some kind of like authoritarian government that had the power to. to oh, just, I agree. You know what I mean? I agree. I, no, I worry about just like, like breakdown. You know what I mean? Like I worry about no, a general I, I, breakdown of things. I See, I, I guess I don't, you know, I mean, I worry about quote unquote general breakdown, but I guess, I guess I would be a little bit more specific. I don't, I don't mean that I worry about like chaos in that way like i don't worry about people sacking my home and you know raping my, i mean i do worry about you know that in a in sort of in the back of my mind but i don't think that that's the likely scenario here i think the likely scenario here is that all of the apparatuses of power that are around us now from these fucking local cops that are basically trump nazis in this town that i live in you know what i mean to you know the the the, the veterans group and the fire the volunteer fire department and all all of these different, I mean, these are, they're, they're all like MAGA heads around where I live, you know what I mean? Or yeah, maybe yeah. not all of them, but a lot of them are, right? You know, these are the fucking people that are going to walk around toting guns and stopping you in the street and being like, hey, who are you? Where are you going? Sure. You know what I mean? Like, that's what it's going to look like, you know what I mean? And, and, and these people in the local setting and in the larger regional setting, you know, as you saw in Portland with these militia people stopping people in the streets because they thought Antifa was setting forest fires or whatever yeah. the fuck, you know what I mean? <laughs> like people like that, like dumb motherfuckers who are going to have guns and who are going to have power because the state is going to vest them with a kind of de facto power. You know, they're going to be this sort of paramilitary arm of this state. Yeah. You know, that's what it's going to look like. Yeah, to the extent that they uh, want to fight on behalf of the state, too. There's an interesting book by Kathleen Ballou called Bring the War Home, where she documents yeah. this. You know, yeah. I don't know if you've read it before, but it's a, it's an excellent book. I mean, and there's, I think there's a ton of truth to the sort of incoherence, obviously, of a lot of the ultra-right groups. Some of them want to destroy the state. Some of them have no problem acting on behalf of the state. And some of them can do both within the same sentence. Well, it's, I was going to say it's 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 often both simultaneously. It's yeah. it's it's Orwell double think right having having opposite opposite ideas in one's mind and simultaneously believing both to be true. Yeah. Right. That the, that the state is ultimately evil and must be destroyed, and we must protect. We act. We must act to protect the president. You know yeah. what I mean? Like simultaneously. Yeah. Um, but. There's something inherent that there's something sort of uh, fascist about that, right? That's not unique to the United States, right? That's not sure. unique to these movements, right? Isn't that isn't that simultaneously kind of uh, the ideology of the Nazis, right? They they simultaneously wanted the destruction of Weimar, and at the same time, the glorification of Germany. Yeah. Right. So you can so you can you can bring down the sort of institutions of the state as they are represented by this sort of politically degenerate 
version that, that, that you're living under in order to sort of purify it, right? I mean, isn't that the idea of draining the swamp? It's a sort of a purification of the state. Of course, Trump is a, is a clown and it's a joke and it's a PR, it's a PR sort of rhetoric, but a real fascist would have that ideologically in their DNA. Yeah. And let's I mean, I'm interested to see how the Republican Party unfolds from here. In other words, it reminds me of a, what we do in terms of U.S. foreign policy, which is sort of creating Frankensteins that we can't control. And I think that this is going to be the same case with the Republican Party that they might well, have, I've, you know, fed into an existing political movement that. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, Absolutely. Well, could hey, very well turn into I'll give you they a can't control. I'll give you, uh, to give you a peek behind the curtain, me and uh, uh, Counterpunch Managing Editor Joshua Frank had this conversation not not more than a week ago about, um, excuse me, about um, the, the near-term and medium-term future of the Republican Party, and he's a little bit more uh, optimistic that the sort of centrist corporate Republican neocon wing that is, you know, not the Trump loyalist wing of the party is going to be resurgent in such a way that uh, while Trumpism won't be repudiated, it will not be in a, a powerful position. Whereas I think that uh, the loss of Trump will ultimately bolster that wing of the party because they will have sort of shed what will ultimately be a political albatross from them, which is the personality of Trump and the personality cult around Trump. And once that is shed and sort of the nationalist, what I would call fascist politics of it remains, that's what's going to be capitalized on by a well-dressed and well-spoken and well-educated fascist. You know, Josh Hawley is kind of a clownish figure himself, but he's a little bit closer, a little bit more akin to what I'm talking about. And he is very good at manipulating populist, right-wing populist rhetoric. Yeah, and all of this becomes that much more likely in the context of a deteriorating socioeconomic situation yes, for people. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yep, especially 100%. With the, especially with the pandemic. No, I agree. I and think, this is somebody, Josh Hawley, speaking of whom, is one of the chief advocates for increased payments to people. Yep. Why? Oh, if wow. they were smart, I mean, come on. If if Trump and them were smart, Jesus Christ, all he had to do is hand out. If he would have handled the uh, pandemic halfway better than he did and handed out money to people, he would have easily won the election against Biden. Easily, easily. I mean, this is easily. what's dangerous. Yeah, yep. this is what's really dangerous. And this is what's wild about the sort of voodoo economics that exists within large sections of that party. Um, and, of course, on uh, in the Democratic Party as well. But, I mean, especially in the Republican Party, it is wild to read in the pages of the wall street journal uh you know hedge fund managers begging for uh, economic stimulus <laughs> and republicans not providing it i mean it is a uh, it is a wild wild uh, situation to me and well, of course one of the only nations in the world that hasn't provided any kind of serious economic stimulus 
It's interesting because, you know, and I'm not a scholar of this, uh, of this. So if anybody would like to fact check me and see if I'm wrong, I'd be happy to admit that. But I believe that's not terribly different from how it broke down in 1930. You know what I mean? Like I, uh, under uh, in, in the second half of the Hoover administration, I'm pretty sure that was the big problem that Hoover had was that he was representing a party that had a lot of people that were not willing to do what had to be done, yeah. right? And, um, you know, again, I, I mean, I'm very much generalizing and I'm sure if I were a little bit more specific, there's nuances to that. But my understanding of it is that what we're basically looking at is something similar to that now. And I think that the Republican party, uh, to the extent that it can, I mean, this whole thing that Trump is gonna start a third party, I'm not buying that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not buying that at all. I see that as Trump just talking shit to sort of you know stoke his own media empire or whatever he wants sure. um but i do think that a more openly fascist kind of politics is absolutely in the cards for the republican party yeah 100 percent. and the problem of course unlike 1930 is that we don't have as we're as we've been talking about of course a communist party a socialist party the iww right. um unions that are organized in militant communities in general uh, or a Soviet day. Union to, yeah. to, you know, to, to, to exist as a counterbalance to, you know, clandestinely provide funds to communist yeah. parties around the world that to, to, to provide sort of a poll, you know, um, we're in a bad spot, you know, in a lot of ways. And obviously climate change changes that equation even more so. And I, you know, what can you do? I mean, that climate change is baked into the equation for us now. Yeah. It is. It is. Um, I know that I've already taken an hour of your time, so I did, but I want to continue the conversation if we could, because I think the, the whole concept of developing alternative political power is something that we just constantly discuss. And the question, of course, is what does the structure look like? I agree with you that the DSA is not adequate, but to me, it's like if it's the largest left-wing organization in the country with people who nominally at least identify as socialists, then let's try and make it the best socialist oh, organization we can make. 100%. Oh, I agree with that. Um, I agree with that. And these are the conversations we should have because I do think that the context will determine as well. I mean, in other words, just as you mentioned, uh, the last thing I'll say about the, uh, the MAGA hats here locally. So we're like on an island, Michigan City's 33% black, but the county itself is like white as hell. So we're in a rural county but we're in a city that used to be industrialized because we used to build Pullman train cars here. Um, here, the police chief's black, more than half of the police force is black. Uh, they're not necessarily MAGA hats, but of course we'll do what, you know, the state and their bosses tell them to do. So it's even interesting, like with the conversation around defunding the police or anything like that here, it wasn't an option because our municipal government is broke. So there's no money to move around anyway. They're already slashing people's salaries and laying off city employees and cutting back hours for the police as it exists. Um, so, yeah, there's all kinds of reforms and stuff that people wanted to do, and I think they're worthwhile. But, yeah, trying to translate some of those national movements, trying to translate some of those national demands to different geographical areas, is it's going to be difficult for people, I think, to like try and take in how different the context is in different areas, uh, I think, yeah, it gets to your point about how diverse the country is. And I think to some degree, how different the movements will look depending on where you live. Yeah, I mean, listen, I agree. I I, I think that um, 
in my experience, in my experience, the most successful um, organizing is is the organizing where people can can have time to develop human relationships based on trust, right? And that kind of thing can only really blossom over the over time, right? People have to live in communities that they want to change. People have to work in well, I mean. I don't know about factories anymore so much, but uh, you know, in workplaces, people have to be in those workplaces and 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 engaging with people like like thinking about anything from an office environment to working for a cleaning service to being a you know a farm worker, right? There's a thousand different ways that people engage politically, and I agree with you that most of the time people don't want to hear anything about that. You know what I mean? People don't want to hear anything about politics and stuff like that for the most part. You know, uh, certainly like in the Hispanic community, oftentimes you're never going to hear whispers about that kind of stuff. Well, what percentage of the working class in the United States is Spanish speaking? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, you're talking about millions upon millions of people that you're theoretically struggling on behalf of in the working class, right? That you have very little way of engaging with. I think that that is the case for most quote unquote organizer, organizers, you know. Um, as far as, as, far as um, what you're talking about where, uh, you know, states and local municipalities have broken down, Listen, I don't know the answer to that other than other than to say that you do have to make compromises and you do have to find people that can assume positions of authority in those places that can make change. So I agree with you, obviously, if you have somebody running as a Democrat that can actually do that job and do it better and help people in the community, then you have a responsibility to support them. I'd support Democrats in my community. I had a union negotiator who was running for a state assemblyman, my local state assemblyman. I absolutely voted for him. I told everybody else to do that too. But I mean, beyond that, I'm not going to engage beyond you know, saying who I'm going to cast my votes for. I think that um, building a political structure that's going to respond to some of these needs like DSA and others, you know, I think that this is the task of the left now. I, I don't I don't think that we're going to win political power through the Democratic Party anytime soon. Look at the situation. Look at the situation nationally. They have positioned themselves with a young cadre of Democrats who will be in positions of authority and power for the next 20 to 30 years. You think you're ever going to get rid of Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg? You won't. Yeah. You think, you know, these people are going to be there. And if you think that they're going to let AOC or anybody else like that take over their party, no way. No, I don't think that they're going to do that. I think the question is, and for me, again, outside of electoral politics and outside of party politics, organizing at the workplace has to be one of the top priorities for people. I mean, to me, it's a, what Even is the, that's hard. What it, oh, that's it's, very hard. of very, course, very hard. of course, very hard. Um, but it's also the most worthwhile thing that I think people can be doing if they want to have actual leverage. So if the question is, you know, you want political power, what kind of power are you going to wield as a party? Well, what kind of a political crisis can you create as a party? 
um, you know. Well, and, 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 and you just made me think of something else that that is one area where you do have a potential difference where you, uh, between Democrat and a Republican and where you could potentially see a Biden administration improve our situation, our meaning the left, right, where, uh, you know, a simple um, appointment at the National Labor Relations Board would do wonders. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, a couple of new let's say genuine people in regulatory authority can do quite a lot. You know, like I, I work in a, I work in, in private industry and I work with a regulatory authority. They wield an incredible amount of power. Anybody who's ever dealt with a regulatory agency, like it's amazing. These people can just, I mean, they can tell billion dollar multinational corporations what the hell to do anytime they want to and it's and it's one of the amazing things about quote unquote rule of law is that you see it in action in the professional in, in a professional environment and um i think that ultimately um people are going to need to come to terms with what um what the left politics is supposed to look like in this country and i think the power like we were saying earlier is going to be built at the local level that's what i think yeah, I think that's going to be part of it. I think um, for us, if you don't have power built at the local level, there's nothing that you can do at the national level because you're constantly pulling from the same pool of people. So to your point about the mobilizations, yeah, we could have uprisings and mobilizations in a cycle for the rest of time, and they'll be pulling from like a very disorganized, atomized population that's not connected to a political existing political organization or movement. So, yeah, they could keep coming out and doing stuff. Um, but to your point about regulatory power, this gets to my point about the state. To me, it's a matter of what has the power to sort of corral capital. Uh, and there is no other entity other than the state to do that. And there, oh. so. <laughs> hey, you know, Karl Marx, dude, yes, 100%. Mean, so uh, you like, know, I agree with you. I don't I come at it even from an ideological or historic i mean no, this is but just that's, straight up from like no but that's know. lenin i mean that's state yeah. and revolution that is yeah. you you just you so the question well is state and revolution. But, but the question is for us is yeah what how exactly what exactly does that look like if you have an entity like the dsa are you running people for electoral office under the democratic party ticket are you running them as independents are you starting a party that can i don't see any reason to run any candidates as independents i see very little reason to do that i mean yeah. if you're kind of, if you're if your goal is to contend for electoral power you have to do it as a democrat in in the in the system that exists yeah um if your goal is to use an election to build a profile for a new political entity then you could do that too you know what I mean? That's that's perfectly that's perfectly acceptable. I don't think that the electoral uh, political route is going to build an independent politics of any kind for the left. I think that if you want to see it as stopgap measure, if you want to see it as a potential way to you know prevent a calamity, uh, if you want to cast a lesser evil vote or any of these things, I used to be incredibly judgmental about all of those things and really judge people for you know making lesser evil votes. And now I, I you know I guess maybe I'm older and more cynical or whatever, but I don't really judge people for lesser evil votes anymore because there's not much else for them to do, you know? And um, I well, think sure. that- Sure, I and it doesn't make, it's not, it's, you know, it's a contradiction to say that electoral politics don't mean much and then to judge someone for making a vote. Like to me, oh, yeah, it's like, yes. you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, like to, it's, 
to me it's just like i'm easy no i sort of yeah I, I agree i think electropolitics mean a great deal i i i just think that uh the idea that the left as i understand it is going to contend for electoral power as some kind of uh independent entity i don't think that that's realistic i think that the left as an independent political entity can can only contend for power in a non-electoral sense i think that the left can contend for power under the banner of the democratic party quote unquote to the extent that uh you want to uh you know put some resources into AOC 2028 or whatever the next big thing for, you know, a democratic left. I'm is not going excited to be. about that. No, you know, whatever it's going to yeah. be, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I no. just, have, I wasn't excited for Bernie 2016, man. I wasn't excited yeah. for Bernie 2020. Like none of this excites me, you yeah. know, but like, I'll support it. You want me to throw some, you want me to throw some support to it? Sure. You want me to throw, you know, you want me to throw some donations? I'll give you some, you know, cause I would love to see those things succeed against the alternative but none of these things excite me and none of them uh, offer, in my view, a solution to the real problems we're facing. Yeah. Well, I think the thing is, is you go into a campaign and you understand what you're going to get. So in other words, we went into 2020 thinking, yeah, he's likely not going to win this campaign because what had people done for the last four years? I mean, we just looked around and we were like, how many people have organized in the last four years and what exists for the last four years? So we would look around and even in Indiana, where Bernie won in 2016 and there was a hell of a get-out-the-vote effort, there was no existing independent political organizations other than ours and the Black Lives Matter chapters that existed in Gary and South Bend. I mean, other than that, in all of northern Indiana, there were no independent left-wing organizations that existed from 2016 to 2020 other than those three. So, you know, we went into 2020 going, yeah, we're going to get probably what we see, which is a lot of disorganized people who showed up and then went home and, you know, did not organize in the interim um i think the question that i'm and we'll get to this because i gotta let you go because i know we've already went over our hour but what that power is and how we wield it i think is the question you know so outside of that outside of existing state power if we're not gonna if the workplace isn't gonna be the focus then how exactly are we wielding power what is our ability to like create crises to put to leverage people in power institutions capital etc to me, it seems like that's where we should be focusing all of our energy. So if like if the best minds thinking about strategy on the left are like, look, here are the top 20 most strategic economic sectors in the United States in these regions. Like to me, that's where you focus your effort. I mean, I, I don't you know. I, you got no disagreement with for me. I I agree wholeheartedly. I think that uh, that's exactly what has to happen. Um, you know, organizing within unions, organizing non-unionized workplaces, uh, going into uh, influential institutions, cultural institutions, uh, going into libraries, going into schools, not just universities, yeah. but elementary schools, middle schools, high schools. I mean, that's uh, all of that is essential work. Um, but, you know, I don't want, I, I shouldn't even say but, and I shouldn't even follow this up with a negative, but I'm going to because that's the kind of person I am, is that uh, I, I, I also have a uh, feeling that the crises are going to become more acute, that COVID is a taste of what's to come, and that 
the way that the, the the way that the sort of human ramifications gets ratcheted up will require a more radical approach in my view um you know i i assume you know you know cali akuno and cooperation jackson and what they've accomplished down there you know I've, I've talked to them and followed them for years now and i mean they do they've done a tremendous amount of course it's one isolated example that means very little in the context of a vast country like this you know but it is a model it is something that people can look at um but yeah, I mean, it's tremendously underdeveloped. And I guess I wonder, and I do worry that, uh, you know, history is not on our side when it comes to the trajectory of um, imperial powers. Yes, no, I agree. And uh, yeah, look, I mean, if we're going to take it as far as it can go, then I mean, this is obviously a conversation that Serge and I have had. I don't know if you want to jump in at the end here, Serge. But yeah, I mean, this is a conversation we've been having for the last 15 years that we've been out and doing this and I uh uh knowing the U.S. population as it stands today can confidently say that very few people would be in the least bit prepared for that kind of thing and so this is why I with every last fiber of my being don't want to see people roaming the streets with AR-15s and AK-47s because um yeah I uh I don't think anyone wants to see that and uh, I don't I, I don't think anyone wants to see that. I don't think anybody's I agree with you a thousand percent. I don't think people are prepared for the reality of what that would look like. Uh, I, I, I don't I mean, I mean, did, I have, let me ask you this. Do you think in that way that because here I do kind of agree with with some of what Hedges and them say, although I don't think it's strategic or with a vision. But I do like the idea of of more and more movements, I think, doing and and performing acts of nonviolent civil disobedience i think it would actually benefit people at this point oh it would my benefit God, movements, i agree you know? i think it's i think nonviolent civil disobedience is one of the most potent weapons that that, that, that exists um i think it's uh in many ways more potent than armed self-defense which i think is also critical uh, or at least uh public shows of armed self-defense i think is is important but yes i agree listen our greatest movements in this country are generally typified by acts of nonviolence to a large extent. You know, certainly that that that's certainly true of uh, the anti-nuclear movement, the environmental movement, the uh, you know the feminist movement, and so forth. Um, and it's certainly true of uh, obviously the peace movement. You know, um, but again, I you know. We also look at we also look at the situation as it is, and I do, I do think that we are now in a time of tremendous political uh, crisis, and I think that Biden represents this kind of interregnum that will be looked back that 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 ultimately will be remembered for its extreme myop, my, myopic view of history and of the history that we're living through. And I think that the lack of vision for most people for where this is going and for what we, what has to happen before we get there makes me worry. It makes me worry a lot. Sure. No, I, I, uh, I agree with you, but I do think that the best anecdote for that is like creating as many 
whatever form they take cooperation jackson's dsa's etc around the country like we need all of that and we need more a of a thousand them. percent and 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 we need people who are able to deftly navigate between them see that's the whole thing is that it has to be it ha it can't just be a patchwork of organizations right there has to be an organic overlap and an organic interrelationship right that's what it's gonna that's what it would ultimately take um you know it's gonna it, you want to stop a fascist you, you want to stop a fascist you, you you're probably gonna want your community standing next to you you know what i mean oh, 100%, that's what it's gonna man. take 100 percent. that's what that's uh 100% what we've been trying to build and that's why we have people on the program everyone from yeah anarchists that I don't agree with on many things to uh, Leninists to I don't know we don't have too many trots on have we you know we've got all kinds of people who've been on the program I mean Maoist you know what I, yeah yeah I don't know, <laughs> you know what, what any I mean? of that means I don't know what any of that really means anymore though like I you know in the in the yeah. US context you know those are just those are what books we favor. Those are what thinkers we like. Those are what ideologies we think make sense to us. But in the grand scheme of things, like in terms of where you, what we've been talking about here in this conversation, I mean, what does any of that really matter? Like, I we I don't, don't employ care. any of it in the you work know? that we do. Come on. <laughs> I don't give a shit what people think about Stalin versus Trotsky a hundred years ago, or yeah. like you know yeah. people's positions on yeah. the Kronstadt rebellion. Like, come on, you know what I mean? Like. Uh, that's no. where the left is silly. Yes, and I do, I have a hard time engaging with with those elements. So, but anyway, those things but, aren't really the left. Anyway, dude, no, this no, was, no, man, this was fun. I I, pre I appreciate rapping with you, and uh, we'll we'll do it again hopefully soon. All right, sounds good. All right, man. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you can become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at parkmedia, Facebook at politics, art, roots, culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.